Teachers are leaders. And we're here to emphasize the good in education, one practice, method, idea, or trend at a time. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the Teachers Are Leaders podcast brought to you by the Warren Instructional Network, and I'm your host, Andrea Coachman. We are here for another episode, and I am very excited today to be here with uh, one of my uh, first, I guess, fangirl teacher faves, Gretchen Burnaby. Gretchen, thank you for being with us today. Andrea, it's so much fun to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes. So for, for our listeners, which if somebody's listening and doesn't know who you are, they haven't been hanging out in our world long enough. Um, but I mean, a long time author and educator, you spent 36 years in middle school and high school classrooms, which is just a, a phenomenal feat. I think that is amazing that over three decades, students got to experience you as a teacher. Um, and in the San Antonio area, but then in addition to your teaching, have published, oh my gosh, a dozen books that are, I feel like are such good in your hands resources for teachers. Um, so thank you for that work. But I mean, text structure, we have your text structure books for fables, poetry, fairy tales, nursery rhymes, and then just the, you know, from the masters focusing on the nonfiction. But then also we have Grammar Keepers, which phenomenal. Um, your academic writing for serious learning, story of my thinking, crunch time, reviving the essay, and then why we run with scissors, which I just love that title. Just, you know, added bonus. Um, but so much, so much work that you've been able to put, take from your classroom and put into publication to just continue helping teachers. That is awesome. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> But I think more than for you, I mean, obviously a ton of years in the classroom, a, f a great amount of work that teachers can use on a daily basis. But, you know, what you mentioned to me, what's most important is how teaching is just a part of your DNA, how you come from a long line of teachers. Can you, can you share a little bit? Like, what is that line? I would love to. Um, I come from a family where my mom was a teacher. Her sister was a teacher, their mother was a teacher, and in their mother's generation, there were four girls, all of whom became teachers. A couple of them went off and did other things after teaching briefly, but three of them were teachers forever, and the ones who had children, they became teachers. So we counted up in about three generations, I think it was 14 teachers in just a couple of generations. So my grandmother had a sister who started teaching when she was 17. Her name was Jessie Lee Pumphrey. Oh. She started teaching when she was 17 years old and didn't have teaching credentials. And this was back, you know, long time ago. Mm -hmm. And so she got a teaching job and started teaching. And then during the summer went and learned how to be a teacher, went to the normal school. I think she, you know, <laughs> right. got some training and then started teaching and then did that for a couple of summers before she knew it she was um, hired to go to t open a school for um, 
Exxon. Exxon was opening oh. a school in Baytown mm-hmm. for the Mexican-American community. They wanted their own school for their children to learn English before they got into the higher grades. Mm-hmm. So she opened a little one-room schoolhouse that Exxon built for their community of workers. And, and this is so before the 60s. This was back in the, I don't know, 30s. Wow. And um, she was the only teacher and she became a member of that community. Mm-hmm. And so she would commute every weekend, go back home where her parents were. She was never married. That was her whole life until she it. turned 65 wow. and was and had to retire so, because then there was a, the legislature passed a law that 65 year olds had to retire. Oh, yeah. yes. There was a big flux of teachers that year or something It broke her heart, but she, she had been with that school for so long that they were, they were family to her. And when the school grew, there became two teachers there and then three. And when they got maybe three or four teachers, she became their principal. Oh. And so she was principal of that school for her entire career. Meanwhile, she had a sister who was never also married, and her name was Meaty Pumphrey, and she didn't leave Edna, Texas. She stayed in the the family home and taught generations of Texans growing up there. So if you go to Edna, everybody's grandparents had Miss Meaty. Absolutely. Everybody did. Everybody in town had her. But now she's been gone for a while and, you know, there's a new generation growing up who didn't know her, but their grandparents, by golly, know her. Absolutely. So I come from this huge, huge line of teachers. And I remember when I was starting to get my credentials and beginning to teach the one who had been the principal all that time, we called her sissy. She was like the matriarch, old maiden, old maiden matriarch of the family. She, um, she told me, Gretchen, I don't believe I would any soon start out in teaching now than a man in the moon. Huh. Things are so different from when I started. Right. Or that was that was the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, I was starting out teaching in the 80s. And I remember thinking, why? I want to. Yeah. Schools, schools. Kids are kids. They need teachers. And I feel like I've got the the drive to teach. I, you know, it was in my DNA, I want to be a teacher. And so nowadays that I'm retired, I see people going into teaching and I have, <laughs> it's so different. It's so different. Voices in my ear. Ooh, it's not what it used to be. I know <laughs> it's so true though. It's so true. Oh, but that is so, so cool. I mean, I think, you know, I have, I've had a couple teachers in my, you know, generations, but not like that. That is some next level in your DNA teaching. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Well, and so much that, you know, now in Edna, Texas, you guys are starting a writing retreat. Yes. Yes. During the pandemic, you know, there was not a whole lot of staff development to go do. People mm-hmm. were, you know, what people were doing in the, during the pandemic. School was turned on its head and everybody right. had to scramble. So that was right when I had just retired. So my team and I didn't try to help because we didn't know how to do what teachers were doing in the classrooms. We didn't right. know how to go virtual or hybrid or Google Classroom fast, learn it yeah. quick. Yeah. And so um, we we kind of stepped back and watched and looked for things we might be helpful doing. 
And one of the things that I saw was, oh, there's this great, big, beautiful home for sale in Edna, Texas. And I, my mom had been dreaming about living there again. You know, she used to go there every weekend of her life as a little child to visit her grandparents. Mm -hmm. So we would drive through town and just look at places for sale. Well, this beautiful place was for sale and I bought it and it's an old Victorian mansion. So at the end of the driveway, the family that had the place before had moved a one room schoolhouse into the, the end of the driveway. Oh my gosh. It was a sign. Yes. I was just going to say it's meant to be. And the place was so beautifully maintained. The woodwork in it is gorgeous. And the, the, the windows are beautiful. It looks like um, you're filled with peace and reverence. Like when you walk into a beautiful church or a museum and, and the light is really beautiful. Being in there, it just made me want to go sit down and write something. And I thought, and there's a schoolhouse. Well, this could be a beautiful place for retreats for writers or for writers and residents to go hang out. So I bought this place and spent some time, you know, playing with it and looking at it and breathing it in. And now we're building three tiny houses in it. We're going to start having retreats on Saturdays and it's coming soon. Yes. You're the first one. It's just around the corner. That's where I'm retiring. So I can play school for the rest of my life. I mean, what a better retirement is there than that? I don't think there is one. That is fantastic. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. Yes, as you should be. Gosh. Um, okay, so now's the part we move into thinking of all of your experience and everything that you've done. Do you have a favorite memory that you can pinpoint? <laughs> Does it need to be a memory that involves um, school? Uh, any, have to be any kind of education-y experience? I have, it's not from my own schooling. I have a memory that um, happened a couple of years ago that I just, I take it out and, and put, you know, hold it like a teddy bear. Ah, so yes. Memory. I was doing a staff development thing in New Braunfels mm -hmm. and sitting in the front row was a young woman whom I had taught. She'd been in one of my high school classrooms. Her name was Samantha. Now it was Samantha Miles because she married Casey Miles, who was also in my classroom. Oh but, my gosh. <laughs> but um, Samantha was now teaching English and I was having everybody do a little bit of writing and wanted to impress upon them the importance of having kids write in their journals every day to unload something, to keep something from their lives, to commit it. And just for 10 minutes a day to write something, because we know that you don't get better at writing without spending clocking in the hours, exactly. spending minutes every day doing it. And so the best way I know to do that is not with assignments, but with a habit, the habit of thinking about your life and capturing the things that are memorable to you. So um, conversations and meals and things that made you laugh, those are so important just to get down on paper. Mm -hmm. So I had them do that every day and, and we embedded grammar lessons into the journal time. So that made it 
easier for my administrations throughout the years to swallow that it had a purpose. It wasn't just fluffy, you know, right. just writing about yourself. So um, when we, before we started looking at how to embed grammar into it though, I was telling these, this room full of teachers who looked a little dubious that these things matter to kids, that once they start putting pictures of their friends in them and writing about the things that they're doing and the griefs that they, they lost their animal, you know, their, their pet, and they put pictures and it becomes part of their heart more than a scrapbook because it involves so much more. Anyway, I told this big room full of teachers that kids don't lose these. They don't throw them in the garbage at the end of the year. And right there in the front row. Did she pull out her journal? Held up her journal. No. She did. She did. And I said, Samantha, is that your journal? Yes. And she held it up and I walked walked over to her and picked it up. It was thick. I, you know, I knew it. And I, I said, and you kept it. And she said, it's the only thing from high school that I kept. Oh my gosh. And I put the microphone in front of her and said, would you say that again? Yeah, please (laughs) shout it out. Oh my. And And so she let people open it up and look at it. And we put it under the document camera and flipped through some pages to see there's this grammar thing. There's that, this is where we did that. Oh, look, that was a rubber stamp of a potato that I walked around and put on everybody's. And she got a star on that page. Oh, look, I wrote her a note on that page. And it was just full, full. And I remembered that Samantha from looking at those pages. And I know she did too. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, I have full armed goosebumps from that. (laughs) That is definitely a memory that will stand the test of time. That is, oh, well, and I can just see Samantha, you know, taking that and then like putting it into her own classroom. That's so powerful. Yeah. yeah. I love that. I love that. Awesome. I love it so that, yes, <laughs> that makes me think into, you know, before we, before we came on to have this conversation, we talked a little bit about, you know, what, what to talk about. And, you know, you've, you have done a ton of work you know, over the years and through your I call them professional development books because I feel like they can, they're usable. Teachers can take them and it's like having you there with them. But for me, I mean, one of my very first teacher trainings that I experienced as a new teacher to McKinney ISD, you were there and you talked to us about text structures and how we could specifically use kernel essays to help our kiddos get down an idea and then expand it. And I, I can remember, and I still, still can like do it or talk about it, but just the bada bing, you know, how can I take an idea and then expand it and you can bada bing. But so I would love to dig in a little bit more to just that idea of text structures and what that can do for students in their writing. Sure. (laughs) Well, when we talk about text structures, I think teachers think about a page of structures that they teach kids, um, compare and contrast, problem solution, description, for sure, sequencing. And, and those are often called the text structures as though there are only five of them. Mm-hmm. But I think of text structures differently. I got started thinking about them when I, we were reading hundreds and hundreds, thousands of pieces of writing by students 
that were all beautifully written. They were doing what we asked and they had, you know, there were literary analyses at the high school level and they were just deadly boring to read. Right. So why, and the teachers in this place where I was were lovely, loving teachers who we loved our kids and our kids were shining and working so hard to do everything we asked. And so sure enough, there were these piles of literary analyses that we as an apartment had everybody writing. And we were looking at them saying, why do we hate reading them so much? Right. <laughs> After five or six, you know, just kill me now. I don't want to read 120 more. No. And so we realized it was because of how sane they were and how five paragraph essay-ish they were, mm -hmm. that the kids could fill them full of beautiful personality and they could dress up a hook and make a poignant ending, but still plotting through what we knew were going to be the steps of a five paragraph basic essay. Mm -hmm. So I got started thinking, isn't there some other structure besides this that would accomplish what we want to accomplish and that's what got me started thinking of alternatives to the five paragraph essay mm -hmm. and why that's the only one it seems like everybody teaches yes. you know, five structures I just mentioned the um, sequencing cause and effect problem solution all of those compare and contrast mm -hmm. for all cast as five paragraph essays yep. if you look at how they're written they're just different flavors of the same start with an introduction, three body paragraphs, and then conclude. Right. And I learned from reading the work of Thomas Newkirk that that's really something that we only teach in American schools that the Europeans call that the American essay oh. that really and truly essays were intended. They were begun by Michel Montaigne in France and he wrote them more like a bird walk at, than a big structure with three pillars, you know, mm -hmm. that they were meandering and kind of exploratory. And a reader didn't know exactly where you were going, but the writer did. And so I started thinking, how could we get our kids to write that yeah. instead of this mm -hmm. and pass tests? Yes. Right. because there they are we have to pass tests mm -hmm. and if we're passing tests then we get permission to do anything yes so I started looking at ways to help my own high school struggling students strip down what's being asked of them and make it so simple and take a structure like um say a narrative and just mm -hmm. think about in the chunks of a narrative you know you're someplace then something mm -hmm. happens and something else happens and something else happens and then you have a thought and that makes a good narrative structure even though that sounds five paragraphy so I started playing with asking kids to write one sentence for each of those steps just one sentence and so in five sentences they've captured what we call the kernel essay like mm -hmm. a skeleton essay and so if they have that then it's got the beginning, middle, and end, and all it needs is the details added to it. And we suddenly saw that kids could do that, and they didn't need you to say, okay, now you've got your introduction. Now what right. are you going to do? Now what? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. they, they knew everything about their path. They knew where they were going. They had their skeleton down. And so they could decide, where do you want to add dialogue? Where do you want to add description? Where do you? And they got to be in charge of it. So if the students know 
several structures, then they know what to do for jumping through whatever hoop there is. Come to find out, you know, the more I started exploring through the years, um, well, do we make these up? Don't people write with chunks of thought? Of course they do. You know, anybody that's ever made a speech knows you go to the podium with a few index cards in your hand, and those are the points you want to make. You don't write down necessarily everything you're going to say. You write down, right. you make sure you navigate to that point. Then you put that card down and navigate to the next point. And that's exactly what those text structures do. They give you those basic index cards of what points you're going to make. Mm-hmm. So um, they're generic enough that you could fill them with any content. Like my favorite one is the story of my thinking, which is just three little steps I used to think this, but this happened. So now I think this. Mm-hmm. And those three kind of track what Thomas Newkirk called the movement of the mind, that our minds move. They they don't just have a thought and spin backwards. Right. We, they continue changing and growing as we take in sights and sounds and conversations. We learn things and our attitudes morph as we grow or they get deeper. You know, that we don't, any of us, wake up as a baby with a fully formed set no. of beliefs and experiences. Right. We, that's what living does. So if we can write down something that we did think and then something that happened and how that changed our thinking, then that's something that everybody would be interested in reading. Mm-hmm. Variations of that are what form the bank of text structures that we use for writing memories or writing about life or writing about current events or writing about anything. It's part what we see and part what we think. Oh, I love that. Kind of um, any kind of combination. So kids like to write their own structures too, and then share them and let other kids use their structures. I think that girl, Samantha, Samantha Miles has a structure in one of my books. Oh, yes. Well, and that, I think, you know, like you mentioned, it's, there's not, there's not just five ways to write. There's so many. And depending upon what your goal is and what you're trying to do, you know, if I'm, if I am persuading or if I am, you know, writing a narrative or whatever, then thinking through those text structures or looking at the bank or coming up with your own is totally what's going to make it that, that unique part, you know, more like having a conversation with somebody versus reading that same five paragraph essay over and over again I love that's that. right because we don't know what each other thinks and that's the, full of the surprise when you read something and you're coming up on their thought and they they come out with something that you didn't expect it's yeah. such pleasure yes for a reader yeah oh well so how I mean I can I can envision this I can see it I feel like I do this when I am working and doing my writing and my demonstration writing you know in front of other teachers uh-huh. But how does this, how do you translate it from? And cause you know, you, you and I fellow Texans here, we know all about our state test, but so how does that translate from that journal writing, that playing, you know, figuring out what you want to say into that like test genre, that test writing genre? Well, here's what, what happens when you're writing for yourself Um, Like when we're doing journal writing, we don't necessarily have a text structure. We just sit down and you write whatever's bothering you or maybe whatever, you know, it might be a series of images, whatever. 
It's not for a reader. It's for you. Right. It might be a list. Tom Romano carries around a little pack of um, cards that he takes out and writes out of his pocket and those oh. turn into things. But so they're not for anybody, but just yourself. But when you're writing for a, a person, even if it's just a test reader, mm -hmm. give you a score or a teacher or a friend or someone that's going to receive it. You, you plan out kind of like planning out a production from the moment the curtain opens. What do you want them to see? Mm -hmm. What do you want them to see first and second and third? And Peter Elbow says, you know, it's good to write on sticky notes and then move them around and decide what you want to show first and second and third. Yeah. That writing is supposed to be real malleable. It's not starting at the top of a page and casting it in stone from then on. And so when we're writing for someone else, we look at what we want them to do first and second and third. And it might be that they come right out of our journals. The pieces come right out of what we've been writing about in our journals. I remember one time Linda Reef was doing a workshop with, when I was a young teacher, she had just published Seeking Diversity. And someone asked her, where did you get all these ideas? And she had her journal with her. Oh, wow. Opened it up in front of the room. And she, I remember so clearly she opened it up and I expected to see pages and pages of paragraphs, you know, right. filled with her handwriting. And that's not what I saw. She opened it up and there were cartoons taped in there and jotted things and colorful things. And as she flipped through the pages, I just was dying to get up and go look closely yeah. at what she had in there. And it, I don't remember too much of what else she said after that, because my head was spinning for the rest of the time she was talking to us about the possibilities that that brings to the table. Yeah. It's so much more conversational to have writing like that. And she said, what she said was, I didn't have to work on content. It was all in here. My observations of my classroom and oh. she flipped through those pages. And so obviously the things that she was noticing, she pulled out and used and put them together for a reader. So how to bridge that gap when it's just for you, it looks like chaos. But when you're making it for someone else, you have to plan. I can't just dump this on their head. No. I have to give them a little bit and then, you know, negotiate it to them one chunk at a time and give them a reason what this solves or what problem this solves or what this is for, or what you might find useful here. So that's, the, that's the plan. You put yourself into someone else's shoes and think, yeah. what do they need? What would help? Oh, yes. Oh my gosh. I still am. I'm a little like trying to think through if I saw Linda Reef's journal, that'd be wow. But I was, I feel, I would feel the same seeing your journal. <laughs> like, Oh, you know, Penny Kittle has done that. I've seen Penny yes. present in numerous places and she opens up her journal and, and flips through some pages and hers is like a little artwork because she yes. also draws and uses colors. Yeah. It's phenomenal. One time I got to sit next to her and as she was flipping through pages, I just wanted to go ching and take pictures yeah. with everything I was seeing. Yes. It was like artwork, beautiful. Mm -hmm. But I think that is so powerful. You know, you, I feel like we hear, and especially, you know, living in the literacy world, you know, how do you get better at your craft? You practice, but then 
to have people who have been in you, you authors living in this world are living that day to day. I mean, it, it really is that practice, what you preach. Like I've been doing this. I recommend doing this. I'm still doing this. So, you know, it's just like, you can't the, stop doing this. Here's what I love it. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, and I'm sure, well, I like to keep, I like to keep my journals. So I have a whole shelf that has like my journals on the shelf. I don't always go back and look at them. I don't always love that, but they're there. And it's, you know, just that the writing and the thoughts and, you know, then obviously that's the chaos of it, right? That's my writing, but taking it and then having that to turn into something. And I think that is what, you know, like you said at the very beginning, we have to give kids that time, that dedicated time to do that, to get out whatever it is. But then, you know, you create this bank that then can be taken and turned into a kernel essay and then, you know, expanded and turned into a formal essay, you know, for whatever the audience or whatever the genre. And I think that that's- you know what, Andrea, we, um, this reminded me of something that we did back when I was teaching ninth grade and we were morphing into a test that had more informational writing and we, the teachers were kind of in an uproar about we're doing so much narrative writing. We've always mm -hmm. done narrative writing on the test. How do we switch over to more academic writing? Right. So people were saying that we can't write about ourselves anymore. We can't use a pronoun. I, we can't, oh, yeah. no. we've got to write about things that are disconnected from us. Mm -hmm. And I, I thought, okay, there's a backlash that's a little crazy. Um, so part of what we did in, this was really a fun experiment. And I think everybody could do it and enjoy it like I did. But we had kids mine through their journals. Mm -hmm. I gave them a little sheet of topics. And I wanted them to find, you know, there were three columns. And I put this into the book called The Story of My Thinking. It's called mining the journals <laughs> like Makes sense. Nice. and in three columns the first column was things like um well hang on I just happen to have it right here oh nice <laughs> happen to have a copy of it it's a journal hunt so um it's a little page that looks like this uh-huh look through your journal and there are three columns and like best moments and then I left four or five spaces worst moments moments of confusion mm. Things you believe or believed, changes you see in you, changes in how you see others or the world. That's the first column. Okay. So each one of those, as they look through their journals, they'd write down what they were writing about and what page it was on or what date. Hmm. And so, for instance, the student wrote for uh, moments of confusion, number one, grades, page 14. Cute little bird, page 14. Deadhead, page 115. Things you believed, football victory, page 57, water, page 67, Fred, page 69. Mm. So they went through and, and just jotted down anything that would fit in that category. Yeah. So the second column is things you've explained even a little and things you were curious about, things you needed to find out about, things you can do. And so, for instance, things you needed to find out about, this kid wrote, Bowler's journal, my oldest family members, Christmas gifts, music, grades. So these are all organic yeah. things that they were writing about without being asked. 
that fit those categories. For sure. That if, and that whole second column is writing about information. Yeah. Well, I was like, as you were saying that, I was like, oh, informational writing. <laughs> the first one was writing about self. And the third one was all, the third column is things you'd like to change. Things almost everybody agrees about. Yeah. Things you need or have needed or things you want other people to do. And these got filled up. I mean, they, the kids oh, yeah. these up. And they said, this was really fun looking for those things in our journals. I had no idea I wanted to change people. Yeah. You know, they were spouting off like this one. Things almost everyone agrees about. Music, our state test, Mary, Young Risers, you know, that where the kids were going off about something that day. Right. And it was different, different kids, different topics. So when they collected this, I told them to now label your first column is writing about self. The second column is writing about information. The third one is writing about writing to change things, writing to persuade. Yeah. Now pick something from the columns and let's get going. And so they did. They didn't have to think up topics that were fake or artificial. Right. They had their own massive list. So that's one way, you know, I learned from. Amy Buckner. Do you know Amy Buckner? She's I don't. She wrote um notebook connections, notebook know-how. She's an, a teacher who uses journal writing for revision exercises and many other mm. things. And working with kids who are having trouble finding motivation and struggling and didn't like school. She noticed that if she used their writing and pulled out something from a journal and everybody looked at something to do with it, how to, you know, how to revise it, then their buy-in was so huge. And it, she would just tap to gold mine. So she's got these books of things you can do with notebooks and it's brilliant. Well, she started me thinking about how to use, how to tap in to what's wow. in their journals to pull out for other purposes. And that's, that's why I did that when we were all going crazy for more academic writing. Cause right. if it's not connected to people, then why have it anyway? That's exactly. what we have literacy for in the first place. Yes. People exactly. can connect with other people through yes. language. Yes. Oh. So if, if it's disconnected from people, it's disconnected yeah. from literacy. Yes, exactly. And maybe get you back to that. I don't want to read 120 of these <laughs> essays over yeah. and over. <laughs> exactly. AI can oh. do it. We don't need people to write it if it's something AI can write. Yes, exactly. Yes. Oh, that is super cool. And I hadn't thought about that um, activity, like mining through your journal, like a journal hunt. I think that is super, it makes it, it makes a lot of sense. I do think that there are a lot of teachers who are down for and into the act of journaling and in writing, you know, like creating that space and that time in their classroom for their students. But then how do we make that connection? So I love that idea of hunting, going on a hunt, you know, even just the three columns and then, okay, if these are the genres, you know, the more formal or academic writing that we're going to do, where are those authentic experiences that you already have that fit? I think that's super cool. And there are people that are already interested in that topic because that's what they're talking about in the hall, whatever those topics. Right. <laughs> yes, for sure. So it's already clickbait. You know, it's already high interest for kids. Yeah. And so then 
so in my mind, so we've done, we've done our journaling, we've done our mining. And then obviously throughout the process, I mean, you've, you know, you've spent time with your students talking through different kernel essay ideas or structures, but then that's what they do. They have a bank, they have what, you know, you've worked through in class, what has been taught. And then they take the one that they want to then expand. I mean, in my mind, that's what it looks like in the classroom. That's right. That's what we do. We start with one structure, like the story of my thinking, the one I mentioned, or a memory structure. And they write a kernel essay, and then they write another kernel essay. They write them and they share them. They read their few sentences and listen to how sophisticated that whole piece of writing really is. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it doesn't seem like it could be, but until you've written one and listened to that does say something that I really think is true mm-hmm. or that does capture something. Wow. Then, so they write those and share them and just keep the accumulating some kernel essays and then um, pick one and expand it to be a full essay. But after they've gotten used to a couple of structures, just a couple, mm-hmm. then they see what to do with them. and just really fast they can then shop for a structure i remember i used to photocopy pages and pages of text structures that look like little boxes and horizontal lines yes yes totally so i would cut them up and have kids who are just hanging out with me during lunch or whatever cut use a paper cutter and cut up dozens of those little structures and take some paint tape that Mm -hmm. doesn't stick to the paint and go out in the hallway and just tape them up all over the place so that the kids then they'd come into class, pick us a, um, a topic yeah, and then go out to the walls and shop for a structure Ooh. that they would like to use to talk about that topic. Mm-hmm. And they'd just stand there and read structures and read them and read them. And then they'd pluck one from the wall, take it into the classroom, copy it down and go put it back on the wall. Oh, nice. I heard from them that they just love shopping for a structure. I mean, well, who doesn't love shopping in some shape, form, or fashion? So then I think that's perfect. Shop for a structure. (laughs) Find a way to talk about it. And then they'd write their essays. They'd first write a kernel Mm -hmm. and try it out and see what they liked, what it said, and then expand it if they did and change it if they didn't. Yeah. Gave them complete control and it gave them something that would have a beginning, middle and end that was not a five paragraph essay. Right. And, you know, for me, the treat was all of their writing was different. Yeah. Everybody wrote a different essay. Right. (laughs) Treat for you. (laughs) I love that. For me, because I never knew what they were going to be doing. No. But even though. I could lift their final essay and look at underneath and see where their kernel was, what structure they started with and track the movement of their mind and see right. how, they, how they designed it. It's so easy to give high grades when you see all the thinking that goes into it, kind of like in math where you show your thinking. Mm-hmm. And it also meant that they couldn't cheat. They had to have the essay. And I mean, they had to start with the basic ideas from their own heads. Right, right. So cheating was never an issue. They never plagiarized. They couldn't go download someone else's essay. No. Where's the kernel essay? Right. Yes. When I, it, you know, thinking back through that, you know, you have your flip book where you just like, we would do, you know, the one sentence, like to follow the text structure, and then you could expand, lift up your piece of paper, expand the second idea. 
you know, so on and so forth. But I also think that emphasizes just the whole process, you know, versus that just here's my final product. Like you're emphasizing everything that goes into that, you know, when you do choose to expand your kernel, just like what you said, you know, being able to track their, track the movement of their mind. And I, I just think that's so powerful in a literacy classroom, not just the product, but also the process and how kiddos are able to get from A to Z, you know, depending upon what that essay looks like. No, back when we first started noticing that there was a process for writing, (laughs) when Donald Graves appealed to the Ford Foundation and the National Writing Project was launched a long time ago, and the process for writing became as important as the product, Mm -hmm. started manufacturing those writing process posters that said, pre-writing, drafting, revising, editing, publishing. And so everybody thought you had to do it in that order. Right. And that big fat pseudo concept, if you want to use Vygotsky's language, because real writing doesn't happen in that order. So people write a kernel essay. I've had teachers ask me, well, so what does this produce? Is this pre-writing? And it depends on what you're going to do with it next. Yeah. if you type it up and give it to your husband as an anniversary present, it's published. It is. <laughs> if you want to take it and throw it in the garbage because you didn't like it, it was pre-writing. Yeah. Or it's your draft. Or if you're going to, you know, it depends on what you do. Right. Don't have, a, okay, now I'm finishing my final copy. We, uh, this is my sloppy copy. That's not what anybody does except for people that don't really understand what the process is. Mm-hmm. So when the kids get to decide everything, then, then you're going to get something good, but mm-hmm. they have to have the, the framework for what those steps are in whatever order that they happen. Yes. Ugh. And, you know, that teaches them also that if that's what writers do, they've got their hat on as the writer, but as a reader, they can see what steps the writer was taking. And that makes them such better readers. They can chunk up a piece of text and go, oh, mm-hmm. look, they're telling a memory. Oh, and look right here, it's a reflection part. And, oh, you know, so they become kids who understand what it's like to switch your hat from being the reader to the writer and watch right. the moves that a writer is making because they've made those very same moves themselves. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, and you know, that reciprocal process of reading and writing, let's keep making those connections. Oh, I love it. I'm so excited that our state finally has embraced the two together. I know. We no longer have them separated as though they're different disciplines because it's like um, inhaling and exhaling, you know, you yes. don't do it separately. Mm-mm. No, you do not. Oh, oh my gosh. This is amazing and I love it. And these are the the times and the conversations where I get excited to be back, you know, back in, I don't, I'm not in a classroom anymore, but with teachers excited to be like, Ooh, let me share this tidbit that I, you know, that I picked up that you can do today or tomorrow or whatever, which is speaking of teachers. So then what would, Ooh, there's a lot of nuggets from this, but what would, what would our action item be? What can we tell teachers that or those supporting teachers that they can take, take and run with, or or just think about a little bit more, you know, as, when moving into the next school year. Um, here's one thing: we have a new state test in Texas, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it's it looks like the 
what they're calling the essay is the extended constructed response. Right. I don't know why it needs a name like that, but <laughs> it's a lot. It's the essay. And it's it seems to be extraordinarily formulaic where mm-hmm. they're responding to a question and it's a text-based question. And it looks like the exemplars that we're seeing all follow the very exact same format mm. so that you could read 10 of these and forget which ones you read because they're so similar. Right. Where they do answer the question and they show evidence where they got that information and they explain that evidence and then they wrap it up by repeating their answer. And so here's the thing I want to say that we can use text structures to teach kids how to do that. That And that's one specific structure. But that's not the only one we should be using all year. And right. some classrooms start off the year with practicing that, practicing yeah. the benchmark, practicing for the test essay. And therefore the kids, you know, are going to be gagging on that one kind of writing Mm -hmm. when the world is so full of so many different kinds of writing that they learn how to structure writing for any purpose with any kind of tone, all kinds of writing, whether it's poetry, fables, short stories, historical things, any, whether they're reading or writing the entire spectrum of kinds of voices out there then they can surely switch and do that kind of writing just in time for the test. Yes. Without spending the entire year on that one nasty thing. I know. (laughs) Yes. I think that is such great advice and such, you know, when you, I don't know, when when I think about any writing that I've been expected to do post school and and even post high school, it's, Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not that it's not a five paragraph. It's not a formula. Like people want to hear my authentic voice and to know that I can put together, you know, a coherent, whatever the purpose is. So I think that is phenomenal advice. Thank you. I love it. My pleasure. Uh, Oh, well, and thank you for all of this. I mean, so many gems from today. And I, I, oh, I should have said, I should have done something there with popcorn and a kernel, but I didn't. Uh, (laughs) Gems it is. But I truly, I mean, appreciate this. Is really fun, and you know, you just said the word gems, and it makes me think of Catherine Bomer. Oh my yes, yes, gems. That if we notice the things that kids are doing without even trying, and capitalize on those, whether they're speech that someone says something in class that's either profound or funny or understated or whatever that happens, we can grab those and make the kids famous for them and use them as something to imitate as a mentor text, whether it's a sentence or a whole diatribe or a rant or whatever it is. And, um, and use those both for the craft and the structure. Mm -hmm. So I, I like to listen to the work of the other people around me who are finding ways into kids' hearts and to help them unlock what they believe and what they think and what they see and what they wonder and help as we all try to make sense of the world. Right. Yes. At the, at the end of the day. (laughs) Oh, Gretchen, again, truly. Thank you. This was, this was awesome. I appreciate your insight and info and I mean, can't, can't wait to talk to you again. I feel like I'm going to have to make a, I'm gonna have to find my way into a Saturday, a Saturday, um, 
retreat in Edna, Texas. Yeah. I think you should come to trailofbreadcrumbs.net and sign up for a, a Saturday in Edna. It'll yeah. be fun. I love it. And I will include absolutely going to include your website in the episode notes. So perfect. Again, <laughs> thank you for inviting me. This was so fun. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us again for another episode of Teachers Are Leaders. Feel free to rate, review, and subscribe. We are, you know, wherever you find your podcast. And if you're looking for us outside of the podcast world, we are on Twitter at WarrenINPD. And our website is WarrenINPD.com. Hope to see you soon. Thanks.